women as the subject of feminism. For the most part, feminist theory has assured that there is some existing identity understood through the category of women, uh, who not only initiates feminist interests and goals within discourse, but constitutes the subject for whom political representation is pursued. But politics and representation are controversial terms. On the one hand, representation serves as the operative term within a political process that seeks to extend visibility and legitimacy to women as political subjects. On the other hand, representation is the normative function of a language which is said either to reveal or to distort what is assumed to be true about the category of women. For feminist theory, the development of a language that fully or adequately represents women has seemed necessary to foster the political visibility of women. This has seemed obviously important considering the per pervasive cultural condition in which women's lives were either misrepresented or not represented at all. Recently, this prevailing conception of the relation between feminist theory and politics has come under challenge from within uh, feminist discourse. The very subject of women is no longer understood in stable or abiding terms. There is a great deal of material that not only questions the viability of the subject as the ultimate candidate for representation or indeed liberation, but there is very little agreement after all on what it is that constitutes or ought to constitute the category of women. The domains of political and linguistic representation set out in advance the criterion by which subjects themselves are formed, with the result that representation is extended only to what can be acknowledged as a subject. In other words, the qualifications for being a subject must first be met before representation can be extended. Foucault points out that juridical systems of power produce the subjects they subsequently come to represent. Juridical notions of power appear to regulate political life in purely negative terms, that is, through the limitation, prohibition, regulation, control, and even protection of individuals related to that political structure through the contingent and retractable operation of choice. But the subjects regulated by such structures are, by virtue of being subjected to them, formed, defined, and reproduced in accordance with the requirements of those structures. If this analysis is right, then the juridical formation of language and politics that represents women as the subject of feminism is itself a dic discursive formation and effect of a given version of representational politics. And the feminist subject turns out to be discursively constituted by the very political system that is supposed to facilitate its emancipation. This becomes politically problematic if that system can be shown to produce gendered subjects along a differential axis of domination, or to produce subjects who are presumed to be masculine. In such cases, an uncritical appeal to such a system for the emancipa emancipation of women will be clearly self-defeating. The question of the subject is crucial for politics, and for feminist politics in particular, because juridical subjects are invariably produced through certain exclusionary practices that do not show once the juridical structure of politics has been established. In other words, the political structure of the subject proceeds with, with certain legitimating and exclusionary aims, 
and these political operations are effectively concealed and naturalized by a political analysis that takes juridical structures as their foundation. Juridical power inevitably produces what it claims merely to represent. Hence, politics must be concerned with this dual function of power, the juridical and the productive. In effect, the law produces and then conceals the notion of a subject before the law in order to invoke that discursive formation as a naturalized foundational premise that subsequently legitimates the law's own regulatory hegemony. It is not enough to inquire into how women might become more fully represented in language and politics. Feminist critique ought also to understand how the category of women, the subject of feminism, is produced and restrained by the very structures of power through which emancipation is sought. Indeed, the question of women as a subject of feminism raises the possibility that there may not be a subject who stands before the law, awaiting representation in or by the law. Perhaps the subject, as well as the invocation of a temporal before, is constituted by the law as the fictive foundation of its own legitimacy. The prevailing assumption of the ontological integrity of the subject before the law might be understood as the contemporary trace of the state of nature hypothesis, that foundationalist fable constitutive of the juridical structures of classical liberalism. The performative invocation of a non-historical before becomes the foundational premise that guarantees a pre-social ontology of persons who freely consent to be governed and thereby constitute the legitimacy of the social contract. Apart from the foundationalist fictions that support the notion of the subject, however, there is the political problem that feminism encounters in the assumption that the term women denotes a common identity. Rather than a stable signifier that commands the assent of those whom it purports to describe and represent, women, even in the plural, has become a troublesome term, a site of contest, a cause for anxiety. As Denise Riley's title suggests, Am I That Name?, is a question produced by the very possibility of the name's multiple significations. If one is a woman, that is surely not all one is. The term fails to be exhaustive, not because a pregendered person transcends the specific paraphernalia of its gender, but because gender is not always constituted coherently or consistently in different historical contexts, and because gender intersects with racial, class, ethnic, sexual, and regional modalities of discursively constituted identities. As a result, it becomes impossible to separate out gender from the political and cultural intersections in which it is invariably produced and maintained. The political assumption that there must be a universal basis for feminism, one which must be found in an identity assumed to exist cross-culturally, often accompanies the notion that the oppression of women has some singular form discernible in the universal or hegemonic structure of patriarchy or masculine domination. The notion of a universal patriarchy has been widely criticized in recent years for its failure to account for the workings of gender oppression in the concrete cultural contexts in which it exists. Where those various contexts have been consulted within such theories, it has been to find examples or illustrations of a universal principle that is assumed from the start. That form of feminist theorizing has come under criticism for its efforts to colonize and appropriate non-Western cultures 
to support highly Western notions of oppression, but because they tend to uh, tend as well to construct a third world or even an Orient in which gender oppression is subtly explained as symptomatic of an essential non-Western barbarism. The urgency of feminism to establish a universal status for patriarchy in order to strengthen the appearance of feminism's own claims to be representative has occasionally motivated the shortcut to a categorical or fictive universality of the structure of domination held to produce women's common subjugated experience. Although the claim of universal patriarchy no longer enjoys the kind of credibility it once did, the notion of a generally shared conception of women, the corollary to that framework, has been much more difficult to displace. Certainly, there have been plenty of debates. Is there some com commonality among women that pre-exists their oppression, or do women have a bond by virtue of their oppression alone? Is there a specificity to women's, women's cultures that is independent of their subordination by hegemonic masculinist cultures? Are the specificity and integrity of women's cultural or linguistic practices always specified against, and hence within the terms of some more dominant cultural formation? If there is a region of the specifically feminine, one that is both differentiated from the masculine as such, and recognizable in its difference by an unmarked and hence presumed universa universality of women. The masculine-feminine binary constitutes not only the exclusive framework in which that specificity can be recognized, but in every other way the specificity of the feminine is once again fully decontextualized, and separated off analytically and politically from the constitution of class, race, ethnicity, and other axes of power relations that both constitute identity and make the singular notion of identity a misnomer. My suggestion is that the presumed universality and unity of the subject of feminism is effectively undermined by the constraints of the representational discourse in which it functions. Indeed, the premature insistence on a stable subject of feminism, understood as a seamless category of women, inevitably generates multiple refusals to accept the category. These domains of exclusion reveal the coercive and regulatory consequences of that construction, even when the construction has been elaborated for emancipatory purposes. Indeed, the fragmentation within feminism and the paradoxical opposition to feminism from women whom feminism claims to represent suggest the necessary limits of identity politics. The suggestion that feminism can seek wider representation for a subject that it itself constructs has the ironic consequence that feminist goals risk failure by reducing to take account of the constitutive powers of their own representational claims. This problem is not ameliorate, ameliorated through an appeal to the category of women for merely strategic purposes, for strategies always have meanings that exceed the purposes for which they are intended. In this case, exclusion itself might qualify as such, as, as such an unintended yet consequential meaning. By conforming to a requirement of representational politics that feminism articulate a stable subject, feminism thus opens itself to charges of gross misrepresentation. Obviously, the political task is not to refuse representational politics, as if we could, the juridical structures of language and politics constitute the contemporary field of power. Hence, there is, no there is no position outside this field, 
but only a critical genealogy of its own legitimizing practices. As such, the critical point of departure is the historical present, as Marx put it, and the task is to formulate within this constituted frame a critique of the categories of identity that contemporary juridical structures engender, naturalize, and immobilize. Perhaps there is an opportunity at this juncture of cultural politics, a period that some would call post-feminist, to reflect from within a feminist perspective on the injunction to construct a subject of feminism. Within feminist political practice, a radical rethinking of the ontological constructions of identity appears to be necessary in order to formulate a representational politics that might revive feminism on other grounds. On the other hand, it may be time to entertain a radical critique that seeks to free feminist theory from the necessity of having to construct a single or abiding ground, which is invariably contested by those identity politics or anti-identity positions that it invariably excludes. Do the exclusionary practices that ground feminist theory in a notion of women, as subject paradoxically, undercut feminist goals to extend its claims to representation? Perhaps the problem is even more serious. Is the construction of the category of women as a co coherent and stable subject an unwitting regulation and reification of gender relations? And is not such a reification precisely contrary to feminist aims? To what extent does the category of women achieve stability and coherence only in the context of the heterosexual matrix? If a stable notion of gender no longer proves to be the foundational premise of feminist politics, perhaps a new sort of feminist politics is now desirable to contest the very reifications of gender and identity, one that will take the variable construction of identity as both a methodological and normative prerequisite, if not a political goal. To trace the political operations that produce and conceal what qualifies as the juridical subject of feminism is precisely the task of a feminist genealogy of the category of women. In the course of this effort to question women as the subject of feminism, the unproblematic invocation of that category may prove to pre preclude the possibility of feminism as a representational politics. What sense does it make to extend representation to subjects who are constructed through the exclusion of those who fail to conform to unspoken normative requirements of the subject? What relations of domination and exclusion are inadvertently sustained when representation becomes the, whole, the sole focus of politics? The identity of the feminist subject ought not to be the foundation of feminist politics. If the formation of the subject takes place within a field of power regularly buried through the assertion of that foundation. Perhaps paradoxically, representation will be shown to make sense for feminism only when the subject of women is nowhere presumed. Um, so section two of chapter one, the compulsory order of sex, gender, desire. Although the unproblematic unity of women is often invoked to construct a solidarity of identity, a split is introduced in the feminist subject by the distinction between sex and gender. Originally intended to dispute the biology is destiny formulation, the distinction between sex and gender serves the argument that whatever biological intractability sex appears to have, gender is culturally constructed. Hence, uh, gender is neither the casual result, 
sorry, <laughs> and gender is neither the causal result of sex nor as seemingly fixed as sex. The unity of the subject is thus already potentially contested by the distinction that permits of gender as a multiple interpretation of sex. If gender is the cultural meanings that the sexed body assumes, then a gender cannot be said to follow from a sex in any one way. Taken to its logical limit, the sex-gender distinction suggests a radical discontinuity between sexed bodies and culturally constructed genders. Assuming for the moment the stability of binary sex, it does not follow that the construction of men will accrue exclusively to the bodies of males, or that women will interpret only female bodies. Further, even if the sexes appear to be unproblematically binary in their morphology and constitution, which will become a question, there is no reason to assume that genders ought also to remain as two. The presumption of a binary gender system implicitly retains the belief in a mimetic relation of gender to sex, whereby gender mirrors sex or is otherwise restricted by it. When the constructed status of gender is theorized as radically independent of sex, gender itself becomes a free-floating artifice, with the consequence that man and masculine might just as easily signify a female body as a male one, and woman and feminine a male body as easily as a female one. This radical splitting of the gendered subject poses yet another set of problems. Can we refer to a given sex or a given gender without first inquiring into how sex and or gender is given, through what means? And what is sex anyway? Is it natural, anatomical, chromosomal, or hormonal? And how is feminist critic, uh, how's a feminist critic to assess the scientific discourses which purport to establish sex, such facts for us? Does sex have a history? Does each sex have a different history or histories? Is there a history of how the duality of sex was established, a genealogy that might expose the binary options as a variable construction? Are the ostensibly natural facts of sex discursively produced by various scientific discourses in the service of other political and social interests? If the immutable character of sex is contested, perhaps this construct called sex is as culturally constructed as gender. Indeed, perhaps it was always already gender, with the consequence that the distinction between sex and gender turns out to be no distinction at all. It would make no sense, then, to define gender as the cultural interpretation of sex if sex itself is a gendered category. Gender ought not to be conceived merely as the cultural inscription of meaning on a pre-given sex, a juridical conception. Gender must also designate the very apparatus of production whereby the sexes themselves are established. As a result, gender is not to culture as sex is to nature. Gender is also the discursive cultural means by which sexed nature or unnatural sex is produced and established as pre-discursive, prior to culture, a, political, a politically neutral surface on which culture acts. This construction of sex as the radically unconstructed will concern us again in the discussion of Levi Strauss and structuralism in Chapter 2. At this juncture, it is already clear that one way the internal stability and binary frame for sex is effectively secured is by casting the duality of sex in a prediscursive domain. This production of sex as the prediscursive ought to be understood as the effect of the apparatus of cultural construction 
designated by gender. How then does gender need to be reformulated to encompass the power relations that produce the effect of a prediscursive sex and so conceal that very operation of discursive production? Section 3. Gender, the Circular Ruins of Contemporary Debate. <clears throat> is there a gender which persons are said to have, or is it an essential attribute that a person is said to be, as implied in the question, what gender are you? When feminist theorists claim that gender is the cultural interpretation of sex, or that gender is culturally constructed, what is the manner or mechanism of this construction? If gender is, con is constructed, could it be constructed differently, or does its con constructedness imply some form of social determinism, foreclosing the possibility of agency and transformation? Does construction suggest that certain laws generate gender differences along universal axes of sexual difference? How and where does the construction of gender take place? What sense can we make of a construction that cannot assume a human constructor prior to that construction? On some accounts, the notion that gender is constructed suggests a certain determinism of gender meanings inscribed on anatomically differentiated bodies, where those bodies are understood as passive recipients of an inexorable cultural law. When the relevant culture that constructs gender is understood in terms of such a law or set of laws, then it seems that gender is as determined and fixed as it was under the biology is destiny formulation. In such a case, not biology, but culture becomes destiny. On the other hand, Simone de Beauvoir suggests in The Second Sex that one is not born a woman, but rather becomes one. For Beauvoir, gender is constructed but implied in her formulation is an agent, a cogito, who somehow takes on or appropriates that gender and could, in principle, take on some other gender. Is gender as variable and volitional as Beauvoir's account seems to suggest? Can construction in such a case be reduced to a form of choice? Beauvoir is clear that one becomes a woman, but always under a cultural compulsion to become one. And clearly the compulsion does not come from sex. There is nothing in her account that guarantees that the one who becomes a woman is necessarily female. If the body is a situation, as she claims, there is no recourse to a body that has not always already been interpreted by cultural meanings. Hence, sex could not qualify as a prediscursive anatomical facticity. Indeed, sex, by definition, will be shown to have been gender all along. The controversy over the meaning of construction appears to founder on the conventional philosophical polarity between free will and determinism. As a consequence, one might reasonably suspect that some common linguistic restriction on thought both forms and limits the terms of the debate. Within those terms, the body appears as a passive medium on which cultural meanings are inscribed, or as the instrument through which an appropriative and interpretive will determines a cultural meaning for itself. In either case, the body is figured as a mere instrument or medium for which a set of cultural meanings are only externally related. 
But the body is itself a construction, as are the myriad bodies that constitute the domain of gendered subjects. Bodies cannot be said to have a signifiable existence prior to the mark of their gender. The question then emerges, to what extent does the body come into being in and through the marks of gender? How do we reconceive the body no longer as a passive medium or instrument awaiting the enlivening capacity of a distinctly immaterial will? Whether gender or sex is fixed or free is a function of a discourse which, it will be suggested, seeks to set certain limits to analysis or to safeguard certain tenets of humanism as presuppositional to any analysis of gender. The locus of intractability, whether in sex or gender, or in the very meaning of construction, provides a clue to what cultural possibilities can and cannot become mobilized through any further analysis. The limits of the discursive analysis of gender presuppose and preempt the possibilities of imaginable and realizable gender configurations within culture. This is not to say that any and all gendered possibilities are open, but that the boundaries of analysis suggest the limits of a discursively conditioned experience. These limits are always set within the terms of a hegemonic cultural discourse predicated on binary structures that appear as the language of universal rationality. Constraint is thus built into what, what that language constitutes as the imaginable domain of gender. Although social scientists refer to gender as a factor or a dimension of an analysis, it is also applied to embodied persons as a mark of biological, linguistic, and or cultural significance. Cultural difference. In these latter cases, gender can be understood as a signification that an already sexually differentiated body assumes but even then, that signification exists only in relation to another, opposing signification. Some feminist theorists claim that gender is a relation, indeed a set of relations, and not an individual attribute. Others, following Beauvoir, would argue that only the feminine gender is marked, that the universal person and the masculine gender are conflated, thereby defining women in terms of their sex and extolling men as the bearers of a body-transcendent universal personhood. In a move that complicates the discussion further, Luce Irigaray argues that women constitute a paradox, if not contradiction, within the discourse of identity itself. Women are the sex, which is not one. Within a language pervasively masculinist, a, phal a phalagocentric language, women constitute the unrepresentable. In other words, women represent the sex that cannot be thought, a linguistic absence, and opacity, within a language that rests on an univocal signification. The female sex constitutes the unconstrainable and undesignatable. In this sense, women are the sex which is not one but multiple. In opposition to Beauvoir, for whom women are designated as the other, Aragray argues that both the subject and the other are masculine mainstays of a closed, phalagocentric, signifying economy that achieves its totalizing goal through the exclusion of the feminine altogether. 
For Beauvoir, women are the negative of men, the lack against which masculine identity differentiates itself. For Ergray, that particular dialectic constitutes a system that excludes an entirely different economy of signification. Women are not only represented falsely within the Sartrean frame of signifying subject and signified other, but the falsity of the signification points out the entire structure of representation as inadequate. The sex, which is not one, then, provides a point of departure for a criticism of hegemonic Western representation and of the metaphysics of substance that structures the very notion of the subject. What is the metaphysics of substance, and how does it inform thinking about the categories of sex? In the first instance, humanist concepts of the subject tend to assume a substantive person who is the bearer of various essential and non-essential attributes. A humanist-feminist position might understand gender as an attribute of a person who is characterized essentially as a pre-gendered substance or core called the person, denoting a universal capacity for reason, moral deliberation, or language. The universal conception of the person, however, is displaced as a point of departure for a social theory of gender by those historical and anthropological positions that understand gender as a relation among socially constituted subjects in specifiable contexts. This relational or contextual point of view suggests that what the person is, and indeed what gender is, is always relative to the constructed relations in which it is determined. As a shifting and contextual phenomenon, gender does not denote a substantive being, but a relative point of convergence among culturally and historically specific sets of relations. Gray would maintain, however, that the feminine sex is a point of linguistic absence. The impossibility of a grammatically denoted substance and hence, the point of view that exposes that substance is an abiding and foundational illusion of a masculinist discourse. This absence is not marked as such within the masculine signifying economy, a contention that reverses Beauvoir's argument and Wittig's that the female sex is marked, while the male sex is not. For Ergray, the female sex is not a lack or an other, that imminently or negatively defines the subject in its masculinity. On the contrary, the female sex eludes the very requirements of representation, for she is neither other nor the lack. Those categories remaining relative to the Sartrean subject, imminent to that phalagocentric scheme. Hence, for Irgray, the feminine could never be the mark of a subject, as Beauvoir would suggest. Further, the feminine could not be theorized in terms of a determinate relation between the masculine and the feminine within any given discourse, for discourse is not a relevant notion here. Even in their variety, discourses constitute so many modalities of phalagocentric language. The female sex is thus also the, su the subject that is not one. The relation between masculine and feminine cannot be represented in a signifying economy in which the masculine constitutes the closed circle of signifier and signified. Paradoxically enough, Beauvoir prefigured this impossibility in The Second Sex when she argued that men could not settle the question of women because they would then be acting as both judge and party to the case. 
The distinctions among the above positions are far from discrete. Each of them can be understood to problematize the locality and meaning of both subject and gender within the context of socially instituted gender asymmetry. The interpretive possibilities of gender are in no sense exhausted by the alternatives suggested above. The problematic circularity of a feminist inquiry into gender is underscored by the presence of positions which, on the one hand, presume that gender is a secondary characteristic of persons, and those which, on the other hand, argue that the very notion of the person, positioned within language as a subject, is a masculinist construction and prerogative which effectively excludes the structural and semantic possibility of a feminine gender. The consequence of such sharp disagreements about the meaning of gender, indeed whether gender is the term to be argued about at all, or whether the discursive construction of sex is indeed more fundamental, or perhaps women, or woman, and or men and man, establishes the need for a radical rethinking of the categories of, categories of identity within the context of relations of radical gender asymmetry. For Beauvoir, the subject within the existential analytic of misogyny is always already masculine, conflated with the universal, differentiating itself from a feminine. Other outside the universal, universalizing norms of personhood, hopelessly particular, embodied, condemned to imminence. Although Beauvoir is often understood to be calling for the right of women, in effect to become existential subjects, and hence for inclusion within the terms of an abstract universality, her position also implies a fundamental critique of the very disembodiment of the abstract masculine epistemological subject. That subject is abstract to the extent that it disavows its socially marked embodiment, and further projects that disavowed and disparaged embodiment onto the feminine sphere, effectively renaming the body as female. This association of the body with the female works along magical relations of reciprocity, whereby the female sex becomes restricted to its body, and the male body, fully disavowed, becomes, paradoxically, the incorporeal instrument of an ostensibly radical freedom. Beauvoir's analysis implicitly poses the question, through what act of negation and disavowal does the masculine pose as a disembodied universality and the feminine get constructed as a disavowed corporeality? The dialectic of master-slave, here fully reformulated within the non-reciprocal terms of gender asymmetry, prefigures what Irigray will later describe as the masculine uh, signifying economy that includes both the existential subject and its other. Beauvoir proposes that the female body ought to be the situation and instrumentality of women's freedom, not a defining and limiting essence. The theory of embodiment informing Beauvoir's analysis is clearly limited by the uncritical reproduction of the Cartesian distinction between freedom and the body. Despite my own previous efforts to argue the contrary, it appears that Beauvoir maintains the mind-body dualism, even as she proposes a synthesis of those terms. The preservation of that very distinction can be read as symptomatic of the very phylogocentrism that Beauvoir underestimates. In the philosophical tradition that begins with Plato and continues through Descartes, Hersale, and Sartre, the ontological distinction between soul, 
consciousness mind, and body invariably supports rela relations of political and psychic subordination and hierarchy. The mind not only subjugates the body, but occasionally entertains the fantasy of fleeing its embodiment altogether. The cultural associations of mind with masculinity and body with femininity are well documented within the field of philosophy and feminism. As a result, any uncritical reproduction of the mind-body distinction ought to be rethought for the implicit gender hierarchy that the distinction has conventionally produced maintained and rationalized. The discursive construction of the body and its separation from freedom in Beauvoir fails to mark along the axis of gender the persistence of gender asymmetry. Officially, Beauvoir contends that the female body is marked within masculinist discourse, whereby the masculine body in its conf conflation with the universal remains unmarked. Irgray clearly suggests that both marker and marked are maintained within a masculinist mode of signification in which the female body is marked off, as it were, from the domain of the signifiable. In post-Hegelian terms, she's cancelled, but not preserved. On Irgray's reading, Beauvoir's claim that woman is sex is reversed to mean that she is not the sex she is designated to be, but rather the masculine sex encore et encore, parading in the mode of otherness. For Irgre, that phalagocentric mode of signifying the female sex perpetually reproduces phantasms of its own self-amplifying self nature. Instead of a self-limiting linguistic gesture that grants alterity or difference to women, phalagocentrism offers a name to eclipse the feminine and take its place. Theorizing the Binary, the Unitary, and Beyond Section 4 Beauvoir and Irigray clearly differ on the fundamental structures by which gender asymmetry is reproduced. Beauvoir turns to the failed reciprocity of an asymmetrical dialectic, which turns to the failed lula, while Irigray suggests that the dialectic itself is the monologic elaboration of a masculinist signifying economy. Although Ergre clearly broadens the scope of feminist critique by exposing the epistemological, ontological, and logical structures of a masculinist signifying economy, the power of her analysis is undercut precisely by its globalizing reach. Is it possible to identify a monolithic, as well as a monologic, masculinist economy that traverses the array of cultural and historical contexts in which sexual difference takes place? Is the failure to acknowledge the specific cultural operations of gender oppression itself a kind of epistemological imperialism, one which, does, which is not ameliorated by the simple elaboration of cultural differences as examples of the selfsame phalagocentrism? The effort to include other cultures as variegated amplifications of a global phalagocentrism constitutes an appropriative act that risks a repetition of the self-aggrandizing gesture of philadrocentrism, colonizing under the sign of those of the same those differences that might otherwise call that totalizing concept into question. Feminist critique ought to explore the totalizing claims of a masculinist signifying economy, but also remain self-critical with respect to the totalizing gestures of feminism. 
The effort to identify the enemy as singular in form is a reverse discourse that uncritically mimics the strategy of the oppressor instead of offering a different set of terms. That the tactic can operate in feminist and anti-feminist contexts alike suggests that the colonizing gesture is not primarily or irreducibly masculinist. It can operate to affect other relations of racial, class, and heterosexist subordination, to name but a few. And clearly, listing the varieties of oppression as they began to do assumes their discrete sequential coexistence along a horizontal axis that does not describe their convergences within the social field. A vertical model is similarly insufficient. Oppressions cannot be summarily ranked, causally related, distributed among planes of originality and derivativeness. Indeed, the field of power structured in part by the imperializing gesture of dialectical appropriation exceeds and encompasses the axis of sexual difference, offering a mapping of intersecting differentials which cannot be summarily hierarchized either within the terms of phalagocentrism or any other candidate for the position of primary condition of oppression. Rather than an exclusive tactic of masculinist signifying economies, dialectical appropriation and suppression of the other is one tactic among many, deployed centrally but not exclusively in the service of expanding and rationalizing the masculinist domain. The contemporary feminist debates over essentialism raise the question of the universality of female identity and masculinist oppression in other ways. Universalistic claims are based on a common or shared epistemological standpoint, understood as the articulated consciousness or shared structures of oppression, or in the ostensibly transcultural structures of femininity, maternity, sexuality, and or uh, feminine literature. The opening discussion in this chapter argued that this globalizing gesture has spawned a number of criticisms from women who claim that the category of women is normative and exclusionary and is invoked with the unmarked dimensions of class and racial privilege intact. In other words, the insistence upon the coherence and unity of the category of women has effectively refused the multiplicity of cultural, social, and political intersections in which the concrete array of women are constructed. Some efforts have been made to formulate coalitional politics, which do not assume in advance what the content of women will be. They propose instead a set of dialogic encounters, which variously positioned women articulate separate identities within the framework of an emergent coalition. Clearly, the value of coalitional politics is not to be underestimated, but the very form of coalition of an emerging and unpredictable assemblage of positions cannot be figured in advance. Despite the clearly democratizing impulse that motivates coalition building, the coalitional theorist can inadvertently reinsert herself as sovereign of the process by trying to assert an ideal form for coalitional structures in advance, one that will effectively guarantee unity as the outcome. Related efforts to determine what is and is not the true shape of a dialogue, what constitutes a subject position, and most importantly, when unity has been reached, can impede the self-shaping and self-limiting dynamics of coalition.
The insistence in advance on coalitional unity as a goal assumes that solidarity, whatever its price, is a prerequisite for political action. But what sort of politics demands that kind of advance purchase on unity? Perhaps a coalition needs to acknowledge its contradictions and take action with those contradictions intact. Perhaps also part of what dialogic understanding entails is the acceptance of divergence, breakage, splinter, and fragmentation as part of the often torturous process of democratization. The very notion of dialogue is culturally specific and historically bound, and while one speaker may feel secure that a conversation is happening, another may be sure it is not. The power relations that condition and limit dialogic possibilities need first to be interrogated. Otherwise, the model of dialogue risks relapsing into a liberal model that assumes that speaking agents occupy equal positions of power and speak with the same presuppositions about what constitutes agreement and unity, and indeed that those are the goals to be sought. It would be wrong to assume in advance that there is a category of women that simply needs to be filled in with various components of race, class, age, ethnicity, and sexuality in order to become complete. The assumption of its essential incompleteness permits that category to serve as a permanently available site of contested meanings. The definitional incompleteness of the category might then serve as a normative ideal relieved of coercive force. Is unity necessary for effective political action? Is the premature insistence on the goal of unity precisely the cause of an ever more bitter fragmentation among the ranks? Certain forms of acknowledged fragmentation might facilitate coalitional action precisely because the unity of the category of women is neither presupposed nor desired. Does unity set up an exclusionary norm of solidarity at the level of identity that rules out the possibility of a set of actions which disrupt the very borders of identity concepts, or which seek to accomplish precisely that disruption as an explicit political aim. Without the presupposition or goal of unity, which is, in either case, always sub-instituted at a conceptual level, provisional unities might emerge in the context of concrete actions that have purposes other than the articulation of identity. Without the compulsory expectation that feminist actions must be instituted from some stable, unified, and agreed-upon identity, those actions might well get a quicker start and seem more congenial to a number of women for whom the meaning of the category is permanently moot. This anti-foundationalist approach to coalitional politics assumes neither that identity is a premise nor that the shape or meaning of a coalitional assemblage can be known prior to its achievement. Because the articulation of an identity within available cultural terms instates a definition that forecloses in advance the emergence of new identity concepts in and through politically engaged actions, the foundationalist tactic cannot take the transformation or expansion of existing identity concepts as a normative goal. Moreover, when agreed-upon identities or agreed-upon dialogic structures through which already established identities are communicated, no longer constitute the theme or subject of politics, then identities can come into being and dissolve depending on the concrete practices that constitute them. 
Certain political practices institute identities on a contingent basis in order to accomplish whatever aims are in view. Coalitional politics requires neither an expanded category of women nor an internally multiplicitous self that offers its complexity at once. Gender is a complexity whose totality is permanently deferred, never fully what it is at any given juncture in time. An open coalition, then, will affirm identities that are alternately instituted and relinquished according to the purposes at hand. It will be an open assemblage that permits of multiple convergences and divergences without obedience to a normative telos of definitional closure. Um, section 5. Identity, Sex, and the Metaphysics of Substance What can be meant by identity, then? And what grounds the presumption that identities are self-identical, persisting through time as the same, unified, and internally coherent? More importantly, how do these assumptions inform the discourses on gender identity? It would be wrong to think that the discussion of identity ought to proceed prior to a discussion of gender identity, for the simple reason that persons only become intelligible through becoming gendered in conformity with recognizable standards of gender intelligibility. Sociological discussions have conventionally sought to understand the notion of the person in terms of an agency that claims ontological priority to the various roles and functions through which it assumes social visibility and meaning. Within philosophical discourse itself, the notion of the person has received analytic elaboration on the assumption that whatever social context the person is in remains somehow externally related to the definitional structure of personhood, be that consciousness, the capacity for language, or moral deliberation. Although that literature is not examined here, one premise of such inquiries is the focus of critical exploration and inversion. Whereas the question of what constitutes personal identity within philosophical accounts almost always centers on the question of what internal feature of the person establishes the continuity or self-identity of the person through time, the question here will be, to what extent do regulatory practices of gender formation and division constitute identity, the internal coherence of the subject, indeed the self-identical status of the person? To what extent is identity a normative ideal rather than a descriptive feature of experience? And how do the regulatory practices that govern gender also govern culturally intelligible notions of identity? In other words, the coherence and continuity of the person are not logical but analytical features of personhood, but rather socially instituted and maintained norms of intelligibility. Inasmuch as identity is assured through the stabilizing concepts of sex, gender, and sexuality, the very notion of the person is called into question by the cultural emergence of those incoherent or discontinuous gendered beings who appear to be persons but who fail to conform to the gendered norms of cultural intelligibility by which persons are defined. Intelligible genders are those which, in some sense, institute and maintain relations of coherence and continuity among sex, gender, sexual practice, and desire. In other words, the specters of discontinuity and incoherence, themselves thinkable only in relation to existing norms of continuity and coherence, are constantly prohibited and produced by the very laws that seek to establish 
causal, or expressive lines of connection among biological sex, culturally constituted genders, and the expression or effect of both in the manifestation of sexual desire through sexual practice. The notion that there might be a truth of sex, as Foucault ironically terms it, is produced precisely through the regulatory practices that generate coherent identities through the matrix of coherent gender norms. The heterosexualization of desire requires and institutes the production of discrete and asymmetrical oppositions between feminine and masculine, where these are understood as expressive attributes of male and female. The cultural matrix through which gender identity has become intelligible requires that certain kinds of identities cannot exist, that is, those in which gender does not follow from sex and those in which the practices of desire do not follow from either sex or gender. Following this context uh, is a political relation of entailment instituted by the cultural laws that establish and regulate the shape and meaning of sexuality. Indeed, precisely because certain kinds of gender identities fail to conform to those norms of cultural intelligibility, they appear only as developmental failures or logical impossibilities from within that domain. Their persistence and proliferation, however, provide critical opportunities to expose the limits and regulatory aims of that domain and of intelligibility, and hence to open up within the very terms of that matrix of intelligibility rival and subversive matrices of gender disorder. Before such disordering practices are considered, however, it seems crucial to understand the matrix of intelligibility. Is it singular? Of what is it composed? What is the peculiar alliance presumed to exist between a system of compulsory heterosexuality and the discursive categories that establish the identity concepts of sex? If identity is an effect of discursive practices, to what extent is gender identity construed as a relationship among sex, gender, sexual practice, and desire, the effect of a regulatory practice that can be identified as compulsory heterosexuality. Would that explanation return us to yet another totalizing frame in which compulsory heterosexuality merely takes the place of phylogocentrism as the monolithic cause of gender oppression? Within the spectrum of French feminist and post-structuralist theory, very different regimes of power are understood to produce the identity concepts of sex. Consider the divergence between these positions, such as Irgaray's, that claim that there is only one sex, the masculine, that elaborates itself in and through the production of the other, and those positions. Foucault's, for instance, that assume that the category of sex whether masculine or feminine, is a production of a diffuse regulatory economy of sexuality. Consider also Wittig's argument that the category of sex is, under the conditions of compulsory heterosexuality, always feminine, the masculine remaining unmarked and hence synonymous with the universal. Wittig concurs, however, paradoxically, with Foucault in claiming that the category of sex would itself disappear and indeed dissipate through the disruption and displacement of heterosexual hegemony. The various explanatory models offered here suggest the very different ways in which the category of sex is understood, depending on how the field of power is articulated. 
Is it possible to maintain the complexity of these fields of power and think through their productive capacities together? On the one hand, Irgaray's theory of sexual difference suggests that women can never be understood on the model of a subject within the conventional representational systems of Western culture precisely because they constitute the fetish of representation and hence the unpresentable as such. Women can never be, according to this ontology of substances, precisely because they are the relation of difference, the excluded, by which that domain marks itself off. Women are also a difference that cannot be understood as the simple negation, or other, of the always-already-masculine subject. As discussed earlier, they are neither the subject nor its other, but a difference from the economy of binary opposition, itself a ruse for a monologic elaboration of the masculine. Central to each of these views, however, is the notion that sex appears within hegemonic language as a substance, as, metaphysically speaking, a self-identical being. This appearance is achieved through a performative twist of language and or discourse that conceals the fact that being a sex or a gender is fundamentally impossible. For Irgaray, grammar can never be a true index of gender relations because it supports the substantial model of gender as a binary relation between two positive and representable terms. In Irgaray's view, the substantive grammar of gender, which assumes men and women as well as their attributes of masculine and feminine, is an example of a binary that effectively masks the univocal and hegemonic discourse of the masculine, philagocentrism silencing the feminine as a site of subversive multiplicity. For Foucault, the substantive grammar of sex imposes an artificial binary relation between the sexes, as well as an artificial internal coherence within each term of that binary. The binary regulation of sexuality suppresses the subversive multiplicity of a sexuality that disrupts heterosexual, reproductive, and medico-juridical hegemonies. For Wittig, the binary restriction on sex serves the reproductive aims of a system of compulsory heterosexuality. Occasionally, she claims that the overthrow of compulsory heterosexuality will inaugurate a true humanism of the person freed from the shackles of sex. In other contexts, she suggests that the profusion and diffusion of a non-philagocentric erotic economy will dispel the illusions of sex, gender, and identity. At yet other textual moments, it seems that the lesbian emerges as a third gender that promises to transcend the binary restriction on sex imposed by the system of compulsory heterosexuality. In her defense of the cognitive subject, Wittig appears to have no metaphysical quarrel with hegemonic modes of signification or representation. Indeed, the subject, with its attribute of self-determination, appears to be the rehabilitation of the agent of existential choice under the name of the lesbian. The advent of individual subjects demands first destroying the categories of sex. The lesbian is the only concept I know of which is beyond the categories of sex. She does not critique the subject as invariably masculine, according to the rules of an inevitably patriarchal symbolic, but proposes in its place the equivalent of a lesbian subject as language user. The identification of women with sex for Beauvoir as for Wittig is a conflation of the category of women with the ostensibly sexualized features of their bodies, and hence a refusal to grant freedom and autonomy to women as it is purportedly enjoyed by men. 
Thus, the destruction of the category of sex would be the destruction of an attribute, sex that has, through a misogynist gesture of synecdoche, come to take the place of the person, the self-determining cogito. In other words, only men are persons, and there is no gender but the feminine. Gender is the linguistic index of the political opposition between the sexes. Gender is used here in the singular because, indeed, there are not two genders. There's only one, the feminine, the masculine not being a gender, for the masculine is not the masculine but the general. Hence, Wittig calls for the destruction of sex so that women can assume the status of a universal subject. On the way toward that destruction, women must assume both a particular and a universal point of view. As a subject who can realize concrete universality through freedom, Wittig's lesbian confirms rather than contests the normative promise of humanist ideals premised on the metaphysics of substance. In this respect, Wittig is distinguished from Ergray, not only in terms of the now familiar oppositions between essentialism and materialism, but in terms of the adherence to a metaphysics of substance that confirms the normative model of humanism as the framework for feminism. Where it seems that Wittig has subscribed to a radical project of lesbian emancipation and enforced a distinction between lesbian and woman, she does this through the defense of the pre-gendered person, characterized as freedom. This not only confirms the pre-social status of human freedom, but but subscribes to that metaphysics of substance that is responsible for the production and naturalization of the category of sex itself. The metaphysics of substance is a phrase that is associated with Nietzsche within the contemporary criticism of philosophical discourse. In a commentary on Nietzsche, Michael Haar argues that a number of philosophical ontologies have been trapped within certain illusions of being and substance that are fostered by the belief that the grammatical formulation of subject and predicate reflects the prior ontological reality of substance and attribute. These constructs, argues Haar, constitute the artificial philosophical means by which simplicity, order, and identity are effectively instituted. In no sense, however, do they reveal or represent some true order of things. For our purposes, this Nietzschean criticism becomes instructive when it is applied to the psychological categories that govern much popular and theoretical thinking about gender identity. According to Haar, the critique of the metaphysics of substance implies a critique of the very notion of the psychological person as a substantive thing. Uh, quote, the destruction of logic by means of its genealogy brings with it as well the ruin of the psychological categories founded upon this logic. All psychological categories, the ego, the individual, the person, derive from the illusion of substantial identity. But this illusion goes back basically to a superstition that deceives not only common sense, but also philosophers namely the belief in language, and, more precisely, in the truth of grammatical categories. It was grammar, the structure of subject and predicate, that inspired Descartes' certainty that I is the subject of think, whereas it is rather the thoughts that come to me. At bottom, faith in grammar simply conveys the will to be the cause of one's thoughts. The subject, the self, the individual, are just so many false concepts, since they transform into substances fictitious, unities, 
having at the start only a linguistic reality. Wittig provides an alternative critique by showing that persons cannot be signified within language without the mark of gender. She provides a political analysis of the grammar of gender in French. According to Wittig, gender not only designates persons, qualifies them, as it were, but constitutes a conceptual episteme by which binary gender is universalized. Although French gives genders to all sorts of nouns and other persons, Wittig argues that her analysis has consequences for English as well. At the outset of The Mark of Gender, 1984, she writes, The mark of gender, according to grammarians, concerns substantives. They talk about it in terms of function. If they question its meaning, they may joke about it, calling gender a fictive sex. As far as the categories of the person are concerned, both English and French are bearers of gender to the same extent. Both indeed give way to a primitive ontological concept that enforces in language a division of beings into sexes. As an ontological concept, that deals with the nature of being, along with a whole nebula of other primitive concepts belonging to the same line of thought. Gender seems to belong primarily to philosophy. For gender to belong to philosophy is, for Wittig, to belong to that body of self-evident concepts without which philosophers believe they cannot develop a line of reasoning, and for which, and, and which for them go without saying, for they exist prior to any thought, any social order, any nature. Wittig's view is corroborated by that popular discourse on gender identity, that uncritically employs the inflectional attribution of being to genders and to sexualities. The unproblematic claim to be a woman and to be heterosexual would be symptomatic of that metaphysics of gender substances. In the case of both men and women, this claims to subordinate the notion of gender under that of identity and to lead to the conclusion that a person is a gender and is one in virtue of his or her sex, psychic sense of self, and various expressions of that psychic self, the most salient being that of sexual desire. In such a pre-feminist context, gender naively, rather than critically, confused with sex, serves as a unifying principle of the embodied self and maintains that uni unity over and against an opposite sex, whose structure is presumed to maintain a parallel but op oppositional internal coherence among sex, gender, and desire. The articulation, I feel like a woman by a female, or I feel like a man by a male, presupposes that in neither case is the claim meaninglessly redundant. Although it might appear unproblematic to be a given anatomy, although we shall later consider the way in which that project is also fraught with difficulty, the experience of a gendered psychic disposition or cultural identity is considered an achievement. Thus, I feel like a woman is true to the extent that Aretha Franklin's invocation of the defining other is assumed you make me feel like a natural woman. This achievement requires a differentiation from the opposite gender. Hence, one is one's gender to the extent that one is not the other gender, a formulation that presupposes and enforces the restriction of gender within that binary pair. Gender can denote a unity of experience of sex, gender, and desire only when sex can be understood in some sense to necessitate gender where gender is a psychic and or cultural designation of the self and desire, 
where desire is heterosexual and therefore differentiates itself through an oppositional relation to that other gender it desires. The internal coherence or unity of either gender, man or woman, thereby requires both a stable and oppositional heterosexuality. That institutional heterosexuality both requires and produces the univocity of each of the gendered terms that constitute the limit of gendered possibilities within an oppositional binary gender system. This conception of gender presupposes not only a causal relation among gender, sex, and desire, but suggests as well that desire reflects or expresses gender and that gender reflects or expresses desire. The metaphysical unity of the three is assumed to be truly known and expressed in a differentiating desire for an oppositional gender, that is, in a form of oppositional heterosexuality. Whether as a naturalistic paradigm which establishes a causal continuity among sex, gender, and desire, or as an authentic expressive paradigm in which some true self is said to be revealed simultaneously or successively in sex, gender, and desire here, the old dream of symmetry, as Ergray has called it, is presupposed, reified, and rationalized. This rough sketch of gender gives us a clue to understanding the political reasons for the substantializing view of gender. The institution of a compulsory and naturalized heterosexuality requires and regulates gender as a binary relation in which the masculine term is differentiated from a feminine term, and this differentiated differentiation is accomplished through the practices of heterosexual desire. The act of differentiating the two oppositional moments of the binary results in a consolidation of each term, the respective internal coherence of sex, gender, and desire. The strategic displacement of that binary relation and the metaphysics of substance on which it relies presuppose that the categories of female and male, woman and man, are simply produced within the binary frame. Foucault implicitly subscribes to such an explanation. In the closing chapter of the first volume of The History of Sexuality, and his brief but significant introduction to Herculine Bar Barbin, being the recently discovered journals of a 19th century hermaphrodite, Foucault suggests that the category of sex, prior to any categorization of sexual difference, is itself constructed to a historically specific mode of sexuality. The tactical production of the discrete and binary categorization of sex conceals the strategic aims of that very apparatus of production by postulating sex as a cause of sexual experience, behavior, and desire. Foucault's genealogical inquiry exposes this ostensible cause as an effect, the production of a given regime of sexuality that seeks to regulate sexual experience by instating the discrete categories of sex as foundational and causal functions within any discursive account of sexuality. Foucault's introduction to the journals of the hermaphrodite, Hercule and Barbin, suggests that the genealogical critique of these reified categories of sex is the inadvertent consequence of sexual practices that cannot be accounted for within the medico-legal medico discourse of a naturalized heterosexuality. Herculine is not an identity, but the sexual impossibility of an identity. Although male and female atomical elements are jointly distributed in and on this body, that is not the true source of scandal. Their linguistic conventions that produce intelligible gendered selves 
find their limit in Herculine precisely because she, he, occasions a convergence and disorganization of the roles that govern sex-gender desire. Herculine deploys and redistributes the terms of a binary system, but that varied redistribution disrupts and proliferates those terms outside the binary itself. According to Foucault, Herculine is not categorizable within the gender binary as it stands. The disconcerting convergence of heterosexuality and homosexuality in her, his person, are only occasioned, but never caused by his, her anatomical discontinuity. Foucault's appropriation of Herculine is suspect, but his analysis implies the interesting belief that sexual heterogeneity paradoxically foreclosed by a naturalized heterosexuality implies a critique of the metaphysics of substance as it informs the identitarian categories of sex. Foucault imagines Herculine's experience as a world of pleasures in which grins hang about without the cat. Smiles, happiness, pleasures, and desires are figured here as qualities without an abiding substance to which they are said to adhere. As free-floating attributes, they suggest the possibility of a gendered experience that cannot be grasped through the substantializing and hierarchizing grammars of nouns and adjectives. Through his cursory reading of Herculine, Foucault proposes an ontology of accidental attributes that exposes the postulation of identity as a culturally restricted principle of order and hierarchy, a regulatory fiction. If it is possible to speak of a man with a masculine attribute, and to understand that attribute as a happy but accidental feature of that man, then it is also possible to speak of a man with a feminine attribute, whatever that is, but still to maintain the integrity of the gender. But once we dispense with the priority of man and woman as abiding substances, then it is no longer possible to subordinate dissonant gendered features, as so many secondary and accidental characteristics of a gender ontology that is fundamentally intact. If the notion of an abiding substance is a fictive construction produced through the compulsory ordering of attributes into coherent gender sequences, then it seems that gender as substance, the viability of man and woman as nouns, is called into question by the dissonant play of attributes that fail to conform to sequential or causal modes, models, of intelligibility.